Okay. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Na'hamaduhu wa nasalli ala rasulihil kareem amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. All right, continuing our exploration of causes and manifestations of rejection. We are now on Ayah 91 and let's jump right into the, the, the exploration. So when it is said to them, believe what Allah has believed. So believe in what Allah has, has revealed. They say, we believe in what has been revealed to us. And they reject what has come after it. Okay. So the argument here is that some of the Jews of Medina are saying, we are going to follow only what Allah has revealed to us. Done. And then, uh, even though this is the truth confirming what is already with them, and again, we've talked about this this point before, that the, the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him, are confirming the truth of their text, and then by extension, their text is confirming the truth of the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him. But then the response here is, okay, then why did you kill the prophets of Allah? before if you are indeed believers. So so for our purposes, this is a point we've already touched on before, that the Quran tends to focus not so much on theology or the particulars of belief. We will see a little bit of, of something like that when we get into wrong things people do regarding the unseen. That's coming up very soon. But by and large, the Quran is focused on your heart and is focused on your actions. And so then by extension, what we're saying is that my lip service uh, is, or what I'm stating is my belief is one thing. My actions will reveal what my beliefs really are. And so, so, so here, the actions that are being given or are drawn attention to is, you know, something that is just about the most horrible thing a person can do. The most horrible thing a person can do is to kill. And within the possibilities of killing, the most horrible thing a person can do would be killing prophets. Peace be upon them. And so here, okay, if you're even believing in your own scripture, then why do you have this in your history? So this is, this is for our purposes more of a simple point, that your actions reveal what you truly believe. Now, this does not mean that, uh, that if you and I are believers in Islam that we're sin-free, is everyone commits sins. The point is that we would, in theory, if we commit sins, we'd be following it up with seeking forgiveness. And so don't confuse the point that, that when I say your actions reveal what you truly believe, it means you are perfect in your actions. No, it means that you keep turning back to Allah. So you're turning to Allah in the things you're doing by way of obedience or by way of need. But then in the times you turn away, you're also turning back to Allah then too. And that's a very, very important part of the, of the whole paradigm. And so then we get to the story, more of the story of the calf. So I... Uh, <clears throat> I don't know why it says loading, but wait, what if we just do this? No, 
Okay, never mind. So Aya 92. So small point in terms of Arabic uh, language, walaqad is sort of like emphasis. Allah, or, or so basically Moses, peace be upon him, definitely came to you with clear proofs, and then you turn to the calf after that. Okay. You know, you were oppressors. And we spoke about this use of the word dhulum or dhalim. Dhalim would literally be someone who's causing darkness. Dhulum would be darkness. And in the Quranic context, it often is referred to, it often is interpreted to mean oppression and primarily oppression of the self. And just to repeat, even though I've said this quite a few times, that if I am wronging you, I'm actually the primary victim of the wrong. If I lie to you, then in the day of judgment, I have to pay you for it. And thus, I am the one who loses out. So every single time I do a wrong action, it's as though I've given away some of my good. And every time I do a right action, it's though I've increased my good. So Musa, peace be upon him, came to them with clear proofs. And think about all the things that they've seen. They were saved from slavery. We talked about this all in the previous course. They witnessed their oppressor getting drowned. They had miracle after miracle after miracle. And their prayers were being answered left and right. Their requests, their demands were being answered left and right. But then what does it say in I-93? Recall, we took your covenant. We, did the, we, we confirmed the pact with you and raised this mount above you. So, so they're basically right in front of this mountain, Mount Tur. And then in some narrations, I think you find this in Surah 5, the mount was lift, literally lifted above them. Sorry, one second. Got it. Okay. So the mount was literally lifted above them as another miracle. Okay. And so what are they being told? Take. Hudu. Take. Okay. What we have given you with determination and listen. Okay. And what did they say? Samatna wa asena. We listen and we disobey. So, so here we have the children of Israel had reached the point where they're not saying we listen and obey and then they turn their backs on it. Here they're saying we listen and we disobey. Why? Because uh, their hearts, they basically, they drank in their hearts the calf. So they developed by worshiping the calf, they develop this love for the calf as though the love for the calf is coursing through their veins. So now let's, let's, let's address this point, but just finish off the eye before we say that, you know, how wretched is your faith if you, if you're, if, uh, you know, if you claim to be believers. So, so now let's talk about this point. So this is a, a modification or an addition to what we covered all the way at the beginning of course number one. So when you take, whoops. So when you take something as an ilah, okay, meaning you are thoroughly surrendering to this. 
So you are becoming an Abd or an Abid to your Ilah. Here, let's draw it this way. You're an Abd or an Abid to this Ilah, meaning you are a worshiper to whatever you're taking as an Ilah. There are other consequences. As a result, you start creating your a whole system of morality around your ilah. And that may include a system of theology. May include a system of law. Essentially what we're saying, it's creating a system of priorities. So for example, if Allah is my ilah, then part of my goal is to get closer to Allah, to obey Allah. And that's going to be the foundation of my morality. So in its essence, we're saying what my morality would be, would be those things are morally upright, which are either bringing me closer to Allah and or are being prescribed by Allah. If my morality is money, then likewise, or no, no, if my ilah is money, that's going to create a moral system connected to the priority I give to money. This will include things that here, I'll even include like all the different aspects related to any sort of action or thought. So even ethics, what I regard as is valuable. So this would also be in priority. So the values and such, it's going to be built around what I take as an ilah. Now, what else does this mean? If I'm taking Allah as my ilah, at some point, it's gonna clash with other prescriptions. And vice versa, if I'm taking the calf as my ilah, then if Allah is calling me to something, at some point, some of these things are going to clash. Might be the big issues, might be the small issues, but at some point, there's gonna, they're going to clash. And then if we go deeper, what else is this going to affect? My tastes and appetites. So like for most of you, or most of us, inshallah, suppose, you know, suppose we're, we're uh, having iftar, okay? and I come along and I'm serving you iftar, and it's a giant ham. Okay, it's going to be gross. It's going to be repulsive to you, even though you're hungry. Okay? That you're probably going to decide, all right, I'd rather not eat than eat this ham. Okay? Because... I've already digested this whole system of thinking in terms of, of, of what to eat and therefore what do I like to eat yeah. to the point that I would regard, you know, this ham that's being served in front of me as gross, not just meat that I can't eat or meat that I won't eat. You know, I started imagining things like maggots. Yeah. So, so the point is that here, the children of Israel, 
they took the calf for worship and they've they've imbibed this into their system and so now when musa salam is calling them you know to obey they're saying we hear we listen but we're disobeying and so think of it from another perspective this is similar to the behavior of addiction And so why am I saying it's similar as opposed to not being as opposed to being the same? Because uh, addiction could be physiological addiction, right? It could be physiology. Uh, and here we're talking about addiction in the realm of the heart. And that is where you're taking something as your ilah, meaning you are surrendering to it. So if I take alcohol as my ilah, then that is going to affect, you know, in my heart, what we're calling my morality, my theology, my priorities, and etc. And so this is what's happened here. <clears throat> and so is this a cause for Kufr? The question then becomes, what caused them to turn to the calf? So let's go further. So here we have the children of Israel. And so they went to the calf instead of, you know, it's as though we're saying Allah is over here and they went to the calf, right? But then the question is, why did they go to the calf? So I'm suggesting this. Uh, so one of the points that I made yesterday is that uh, as we start com uh, completing this, we're compiling all kinds of causes and manifestations. And what it's the way it's often going to play out is you're going to have a cause which has a manifestation which itself is a cause for further manifestations. And another way to think about this is that we often speak, for example, in the context of drugs, we'll speak of marijuana as a gateway drug, right? That if you start out with marijuana, then who knows where you're gonna to turn to after that. Uh, but the, the, the newer point that people are making is that marijuana is not the gateway drug. Something inside of you is the actual, the gateway that's leading you to marijuana. And then from there, if that which is inside of you is not being satisfied, then you're gonna to turn to something even more. So the gateway is not the marijuana, although it may be a cause for further things, the gateway is something that's inside of you. And so likewise, we're looking at the causes and such. So, so uh, Ahant, yeah, we're basically specific, specifically talking about IS 92 and 93. And so I'm still suggesting the dominant cause is still lack of gratitude. that's the that's the real cause right here and then in this context the manifestation is that they're turning to the calf and then that's causing other wrong behaviors 
like wrong things they did with scripture, so forth and so on. Okay. Uh, I hope this makes sense, inshallah. But it's layers upon layers. Likewise, the opposite also uh, also works. Okay. Um, so let me uh, let me just look at the next idea. Okay, yeah, I'll answer some questions now. Then we'll come back to this. Uh, Ahant, do you have a question? Yeah, um, and you know, referring back to very early in course one, you know, you said it was kind of important for us to have a positive view of the, you know, of the Ummah, right? And then you had also said that the, the, the actions of the children of Israel is, is like a, a, a normal population and it, it could be the actions of a, a, a Muslim, right, population, All right? So like, I guess I'm kind of having problems kind of forming that positive uh, like view with all these such common characteristics, you know, that you see around us every day. And so, this is kind of dark, but. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a very, very important question. So, so when we spoke about human nature, we said that the default of human nature is still good, right? That's the default. We spoke about the fitrah, okay? Uh, but we also do have appetites, you know, as illustrated by whatever level of struggle we have when we're fasting especially at the beginning of, of the fasting period, right? This point of the month, it might be easier for some of us, you know. Um, and so we do have appetites. <clears throat> and, and so our natural goodness uh, is in some ways clashing with our appetites. And then we add into it our mind, which is somewhat a, a watchdog. But each time we give in to our appetites beyond healthy boundaries, I'm using healthy just to use just generic ter uh, language. Uh, uh, the more we give into that, the more that our appetites get stronger. And that is one way that wrong happens. Okay. And so it's not so much that people are innately good or innately evil. We're saying people are innately good, but have appetites built into them. And now think of a collective body of people. Okay. So, uh, if we look at the story of the children of Israel, uh, one way I'm saying is, okay, look at them as that these are people that are innately normal. But then also look at the situation that they've been given. They went from intense slavery and then thrown literally from intense slavery through to intense luxury. Which, uh, you know, you hear stories about people who win the lottery, right? And the stories that make the news are people that usually blow all their winnings or the life just goes down and such. Um, in one way, it's almost looks like they were set up to fail, you know, but they were given guidance to make sure they don't. Okay. Meaning they've been given this extreme situation you know, that if they were given no guidance, it's like a guarantee they're going to fail. Cause I think that's just human nature that all of us, if every, any, all of us individually were given a massive windfall of wealth to the point that we had no more worldly concerns, and let's say none of us had any deen, uh, I'd suggest most of us would probably fail. That we'd probably be in worse, in a worse situation than we are right now. Now we've been done given deen, which is what they're given. Okay. Uh, but still, you know, it's as though the appetites took over. 
So essentially that's what I'm saying, that even with the ummah, uh, the default should still be that you're valuing the ummah, but you're taking the ummah for what it is. You know, just like when people come into my office, uh, you know, I'm evaluating the person according to where they are. Good. And if I evaluated people according to where they should be, I would lose my mind because that's just not real. Let me know if this makes sense or if this helps. Yeah. Okay, so. And I think Musab had a question in there. Uh, <laughs> would you say that the Bani Israel were huge attention seekers? Uh, maybe uh, explaining point uh, further, inshallah, you know, either by typing or speaking, inshallah. So, Omar, I have a question. Yeah, sure. Um, so, is that um, why this, there's always refer to the extremes? There must be some minority um, and some like a balanced viewpoint, right? In somewhere in between. So why we, why the when we talk about the theological differences, why we always pay attention to the extremes, at, at least like all the way to the kufur or all the way to the. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I think that's definitely true for the first half of this surah. Uh, I think it's less true for the second half of this surah. Meaning, because even the first half of the Sutta, when we were talking about models of belief and rejection, we had the super believer, you know, the person of taqwa, right, who has certainty of the akhirah. And then we had the type of kafir that is not redeemable. Okay, that's an extreme. And then, then we have the munafik, then we have the fasik. And I mean, if we look at it just from a teaching perspective, maybe Allah Ta'ala is giving us like, here's the whole boundary, right? Here's, here's the, the wide angle lens. You're somewhere in this picture. You're probably not at the edge, but... You know, here's here's the here's the wide picture of the whole thing. So I think it might just be simply a, a teaching uh, a teaching technique. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, that I found very refreshing uh, was in the study of Islamic law because I think related to what you're saying, it's easy when you're only using Quran. I think it's very easy to become super idealistic, right? And I think you know especially those of us from our Tanzim Iona days, we can give many examples either in ourselves or the language that was super idealistic, super utopian about what can be accomplished. And what I appreciated about Islamic law and then later on the study of Hadith uh, is that Islamic law is super focused on being practical. It's literally the other extreme of what you're talking about. You know, what is the answer for this person in this moment? Right. That's that's uh, in essence what Islamic law is all about. It's it's so much about practice. Good. And then when you get into the Hadith literature, you know, I think for people who are going from Quran to Hadith, sometimes Hadith become like a huge letdown because of how human everybody is in the story, in the narrations. You know, uh, like, uh, I mean, it's super, super real world. Um, I mean, except for like the prophecies and such, but the day-to-day -day hadith over and over again, you know, people that are, that are sometimes nagging the prophet, peace be upon him, or people that are disagreeing with him, or people are just asking him any sorts of questions, super day-to-day -day nuggets, you know, to really, really, really make this point, you know, this is something that I often reference that's in Ghazali's book, where they're talking about the Sahaba, and the Sahaba are basically saying, if people came along later on, they would probably not take us as believers. Uh, because the Sahaba, uh, after they eat, so they're learning, okay, you gotta, you have to have hygiene. Okay. And, but they didn't, but 
paper is scarce, so they, they definitely didn't have paper towels. Okay. And they barely even had towels. And we might have talked about this in class before. How did they wipe their hands? They barely had water. I mean, they had water, but they barely had enough water to use just you know, the way you and I wash our hands. Uh, so how did they clean their hands? Anybody know? I don't remember if we talked about it in this class before. But it's they hands. just let it, let it dry. Well, then your hands are dirty. So part of it is they lick their fingers, but then what else do they do? They wipe their hands on the soles of their feet. Think about that. When I'm looking for my suburban, modern mentality, I'm like, what? Okay. But in terms of the options that they had, what other options do they have? And so, but the point I'm making in relate to your, your question, that uh, the Islamic law and then the Hadith were very, very refreshing for me because they're so real world. Uh, Sami, um, palm leaves, maybe, possibly, you know. Again, I don't know. I, I haven't used leaves to, you know, to wipe myself in any direction. So I don't know if that's beneficial or not, you know. So I think you... you... You touched upon that one during your CIGC speech in a recently over the weekend, a uh, couple of days ago, I think. Uh, the sequence of learning, right? The Quran, Sunnah, law, and then, uh, you know, the way we should do it. That can play a significant role of understanding the whole mm -hmm. holistic viewpoint. Mm -hmm. Yeah, inshallah. Yeah, I mean, I do think, you know, it's in the same way that I used to tell people, okay, you have to be very cautious about going right into the Hadith for study. Like, you can't just open a Bukhari, you're going to mess yourself up. Uh, I also give a little bit of that caution for people who are just only doing Quran, too. You know, because it's very easy. So I keep talking about how the Quran is focused on your thinking, focus on your thinking. It's very easy to lock yourself into abstract ideas and lose sight of the real world ground in front of you. And so, uh, so I think in the abstract realm, that thus we especially will talk about things that look look like they're very extreme. You know, but I still think that uh, I would suggest that in the second half of the surah we we see less of it, and part of it is because in the second half surah we have a lot more prescriptions like do this, do that, and so forth and so on. We're about to be getting the fourth command in about ten ayahs, inshallah. Okay, um, let me see if there's any other questions. Uh, Sami, going back to the point um, that the children, the children of Israel are normal, aren't we all attention seekers? Meaning, aren't are they any more attention seekers than the next group? I don't. I think uh, your uh, your guess, uh, Sami and Musab, is just as good as mine. I mean, essentially, are we saying are they just are they more narcissistic than other people? I think what we saw in their evolution is that they became very narcissistic. Whether or not that was from the start, the point I was pushing is not necessarily any more than anyone else. Okay, uh, what time? Okay, let's continue and add some more. I think I got all the questions. Let me make sure I didn't miss any. Yeah. Okay, so going back to this this next ayah. Uh, so then the prophet peace upon is being prescribed to say, okay, if the home of the hereafter, okay, Darul Akhirah, if the home of the hereafter is for you alone and no one else, then you should wish for death if you're truthful. Okay, so this is a point that I think 
uh, we, uh, some of us have, have come across in different ways. So here is also a matter of their theology. And so their theology was one that is focused on being exclusive, that not only is Akira only for us, we are guaranteed. And so, so then the, the, the logical response to that is that, all right, if you're guaranteed, then you should pray for death. Why wouldn't you? If, you know, the prophet peace be upon him is telling us that, you know, one bow of paradise and some near in one narration, one eyelash worth of paradise is more amazing. I'm paraphrasing than all that this universe contains. And you have a direct ticket to go there. Why would you stay here? This is also, this is a side point. This is also the critique of suicide bombers, right? That if you believe you're guaranteed paradise, then you would not be sending people to suicide bombing. You'd be going, you'd be first in line. You're just like the prophet, peace be upon him, in the battle of Ohad is he's running faster than everybody else into battle. In Badr, he's, he's, he's in his tent, but in Ohad, he's, he's on the ground and such. Anyway, so, so this is more of, of a straightforward point and challenge. And so what we're also seeing throughout all this are challenges to their belief, right? You say you're only going to go to hell for a couple of days. Okay, where's your proof? You say, you know, that we're only going to believe in what's been revealed to us. Well, okay, what about this history that you have? And then here, here's, a, here's another uh, response that's given to them. And then it, I won't bring up the screen, but then the ayah says they're never going to wish for it because of what their hands have, have brought forth. Even though they are, in fact, here, let's just bring it up. But I want to do more drawing. So they're never going to wish for it. They're never going to pray for death because of what their hands have put forth. And we're going to, we're going to uh, understand this in two ways in just a moment, but I might as well mention them right now. Uh, one way is because deep down inside, they know that they are headed not necessarily for paradise, but perhaps for doom. And another way to understand this is that what their hands have brought forth, they're so immersed in dunya that they don't want anything else. Which then leads into the next line. You're going to find them the most greedy of people for life. Even more than the polytheists. And we'll touch on that in just a moment, inshallah, also. They wish they could live for a thousand years, but it's not going to remove them anything from the punishment if they're granted that. Yeah, Allah is seeing what they're doing. Okay, so so just a couple more points that I want to draw your attention to here in terms of what is relevant for, for us. So right here, we're saying that whatever I take as an ilah, a consequence of that is going to be certain, theolo uh, certain theology. And so what do we see in the context of the children of Israel? One was issues with scripture, issues with oaths and commitments. And then issues related to salvation. Oh, you can't see the writing? Hmm. Let's see. Let's try it again. 
Like, can you see it now? Anybody, somebody nod. Okay, some people are saying yes, some people are saying no. So, what are we looking for? Are we uh, do, you see, do you see the part on the right where it says scripture, oats, and salvation? Yeah. Yeah, you can. Okay, good, good, chill. So, again, whatever I take as an ilah, I'm becoming an abd of. It's creating this whole system, this whole worldview. Good. And then, in the context of theology, what we're calling theology here, more because it doesn't fit into anything else uh, as well is a consequence in terms of how scripture is being uh, approached, how oaths are being handled and commitments, how I'm regarding salvation. But one of the big contributors to all of this, which would be essentially where these green arrows are, and hopefully this is not too confusing, are my actions. So my actions are reinforcing a theology onto me. My actions are reinforcing a morality onto me. So let me make this from a, a different perspective. So we're modifying this other drawing you've seen from me. So first the basic drawing, this one that you've now seen a billion times. So once again, get all the Nia and then Amal. Yeah, it's a bumpy M. Okay, so where is in my Irada what I take as an Ilah? So if I'm turning to Allah, that is going to fuel my Irada, which is going to fuel my Nia, my intentions, my Irada being my yearnings, which is going to fuel my intentions and direct my intentions, which are going to inform my actions. And then my actions are going to further influence me. So thus far, we've only been speaking it speaking of this from the perspective of right and wrong actions. So let's let's make this right actions green, the color of Al-Islam. And then we'll do red, the color of the devil in Western tradition. Okay. So so what I take as an ilah is going to then definitely inform my niyyah, which is going to inform my actions, which is going to ossify, it's going to reify, it's going to strengthen what I'm taking as an ilah. So my niyyah then becomes seeking to get closer to my ilah, and my actions are then a consequence of that. And so this gets stronger and stronger and stronger in my heart. And so that's why I'm putting the actions over here, although that might be uh, more confusing than, than, than beneficial. And so the point is that I'm creating a whole lifestyle around my ilah. Another way to think about this is looking from the perspective of, of capitalism. Capitalism is the easy target in, in our era. That if I'm taking money or material wealth as my ilah and I'm becoming a servant of it, even though I'm identifying myself as a Muslim, okay, even though I'm regarding myself as a Muslim, the question becomes, what is my reliance upon? Depending upon how much of the capitalist juice I've drunk, 
how much of the capitalist Kool-Aid I've drunken, that's going to inform my intentions, which are going to inform my actions, and then strengthen love for that in my heart. And so related to this, let's see, uh, Romeo's question. Um, what happens in the case that one is not intentional about their actions, but more reactive in their actions? Would you say that even if there is not a conscious intention, there is still an intention that is demonstrated through one's actions? I'd say even if someone is not being seemingly intentional, there's still a certain amount of intentionality in all my actions. Yeah. Because I'm still the one who's doing it. It may be that all my actions are the result of, of uh, you know, my environment, so I think we, we've done this before. And this, this gets a, a moment, this gets to relate to your question. Do you remember we did, a, I think we did a, the diagram on influences. And we spoke of three different dimensions of influences. One is the self. One is the environment. And one is the unseen. So in the self, you have your fitra and your choices. In the environment, you have your inner circle. And then general society or the world. I mean this in a very loose sense. And the unseen, we have angels. And then we have the devil, the accursed devil and his minions. I just like using the word minions. You know of despicable me okay and so so here what am i in primary control over it'll be my choices but all of these other things are also affecting me because here we're looking through the lens of my intentions what is coming from my heart but we also have other tools of the heart which would be my ears and let's put it up here my eyes so when we were speaking about kafirs at the beginning of the surah we said that their eyes and their ears are sealed off right their heart is sealed and so i'm still always taking things in and those things are also affecting my heart as well for positive or for negative So it's not so much that there's a closed loop. You know, the drawing is giving that impression. And, and so with my inner circle, when I'm young, I won't have much control over, you know, who's in my inner circle. My parents will be, you know, assuming I'm, you have a, a, a common, normal, whatever we want to call it, uh, household. My parents will be at the inner circle and might be extended family. And then little by little, it'll be friends. And then these other influences start uh, also becoming part of that as I start going to school and such and start developing more friends and as I get older. But as I get older, I have more and more choice over who is going to be my inner circle. So I'm choosing the inner circle, but then they are influencing me. And so I've made this point before, I believe that when students are starting at college, I'm always telling them you have to be very vigilant about who your friends are because they will either make you or they will break you. 
And then likewise, it might be harder to choose what society you're in. And so, but that you're also, you do also have some increased control over it as you get older. Not as much control as you do over who your inner circle is, but, uh, but yeah. And then the devil we know is always trying to take me down. So while all this is taking place, we have Shaitan who is trying to affect me through all those sources and he's trying to affect my heart directly too. I mean, there's this kind of frightening hadith taking place uh, uh, in the Battle of Uhud where, you know, there's a bit of chaos and the devil shouts, look behind you, there's coffers behind you. And then so, so the Muslims are literally turning against each other and then they're going on the attack. And then there's this famous story of Hudayfa, whose father is getting mauled in all this, um, who shouldn't have been. But then uh, Hudayfa is then, you know, dedicating his rest of his life. He's just forgiving everyone who killed his father. So, but the point is that Shaitan is literally speaking. And so, so think of the ayah that we have a little bit later on in the surah. Let me find the ayah first. It's around ayah 190, so it's way beyond this course. So, so basically, uh, it's uh, it's something like, "Oh, you who believe, do not follow the footsteps, or eat what is halal, and do not follow the footsteps of Shaitan." Let me see if I can do a, a search really quick to find a. Okay. Ayah here. Okay. So if we look at this ayah, so this is ayah 168. Ya ayyuhanna, so all humanity, gulu, so eat from whatever is halal tayyib. From a legal perspective, tayyib is basically something that doesn't harm you. And so, and do not follow the footsteps of shaitan. If I read this on its own, I might take this to mean that this is talking about Zabiha meat and all that stuff. That ayah is actually coming just a couple ayahs later. Okay. Right here. 172. 168 is speaking more about anything you're consuming. Okay. With your eyes, with your ears. And this language of the footsteps of shaitan is very, very fascinating because imagine you're walking through the forest after a fresh snow. And then as you're walking along, you see footsteps. Immediately what's going to happen, it's going to develop as something in your curiosity. You're going to start creating a story. Oh, who was here? Looking at the footsteps, how far are they apart? Do I see anything else? And in that split second, you're creating a story of who's there. And that's one of the ways shaitan tries to ensnare us by way of our curiosity. And so, and so here, much later in the surah, the caution is that you're always consuming. And so be conscious about what you're consuming. 
And this even people in Ramadan, they talk about the levels of fasting, right? One level of fasting is is you stay away from the haram and fasting, which is no food, no water, etc. And a deeper level of fasting is you're also blocking yourself out from these other things that are not healthy. Yeah. Okay, <clears throat> so shaitan is also trying to influence you. But then when we look at these influencers, we also have angels. And this is, this is in Surah Fusilat. This is around Ayah 31 to 33, so Surah 41, where when you, when you stand up or when you do right and you speak right, then angels descend upon you, okay. reinforcing you. So this is also taking place in response to your good actions. So I'm going to put this near the green arrow. We also have angels who are also reinforcing it. And none of this includes du'as that other people do for you. Okay, so you know, those who have the privilege of their mother still praying for them, their father's praying for them, you know, or their teacher's praying for them, etc. Uh, that would, inshallah, add even more benefit in terms of uh, angels and such. Shalom. And, and so all of this then gets mixed in. And if I'm taking something other than Allah as my ilah, then a lot of these things, you know, the positives of those get negated. Meaning it's as though I'm blocking them out, even though they're trying to help me. Okay, so let's see. moment and uh, let's see how does someone break the cycle okay so i think uh, hopefully you know i've, I've helped and uh, um, you know make the point that there's multiple ways that we're that we're getting influenced uh sami wait so the devil can directly influence the heart the irada i thought he was only able to whisper so he's whispering into your hearts and and essentially it seems like there's two schools one school is that he knows what your weaknesses are because of this arin that's assigned to you right so you're born shaitan assigns a jinn to every person to to map them out, to figure out what are their strengths and weaknesses. And then according to those strengths and weaknesses, you know, they're sending whispers at your heart. Yeah. And then another school is that he's sending a thousand whispers to your heart, hoping for something to stick. Yeah. And both of them are essentially saying the same thing. Yeah. Just it gets into some of the details. And so can he, can the devil know what you are thinking? What's in your heart? I don't think so but he can read signs of what's going on. So I don't think the devil can hear your heart, but I do think the devil can, you know, just like, you know, like, you know, modern techniques of, of surveillance, they, they even look at your pupils and such to look at your desires and all that stuff. Uh, I do think he has that level of capability that based on other, you know, what we would call in poker tells, other other things we reveal, he might be able to figure out what's going on. But I don't think he can actually hear or our, our iradas. And so he's basically putting all these in you to get you to yearn for something else. Yearn your seek to fulfill your irada in the wrong way. All right. Any other questions? And then once again, just to finish this this drawing, 
the question that I raised is where is Allah interacting with you? So one is essentially, so here's Allah. He's interacting with you through all of these things. And for this one, I just make it a dotted line just to, because out of manners, you know, not associating, not associating bad with Allah, but we're still saying Allah controls everything. Okay, <clears throat> any questions? So as we go through this whole process of causes and manifestations of rejection, we're also getting a, a big, big sense of how does human nature operate. All right, if there are no other questions, inshallah, uh, we will continue tomorrow. Uh, and I want to ask the question, do you want to have class on Saturday and or Sunday, or do you all want to take the day off? My three o'clock class, at least some of the people want to take the day off. And so for those classes, we're, we're going to skip Saturday and Sunday. Uh, any thoughts of what you all want to do? I'm, I'm happy either way, inshallah. So, Sunday is Eid, yeah, professor. So, inshallah. So, so, so that means you want to have double class? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Actually, I was hoping for triple. Okay, mashallah, mashallah. Okay, so we will have class, inshallah, tomorrow, and then we'll reconvene on Monday, inshallah. Okay. <laughs> Omar, I sent you a text. Uh, give me a call when you can, inshallah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I'll be take. Uh, I saw that. I saw. I glanced at the text, but yeah, I will. Okay. I'll call you after my next my six. Omar, class. you. Yeah, 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 Omar, yeah. Omar, you may ask Zabai that you know he want to take the memorial day off too. Yeah, yeah, he probably does. This is true. Oh, by the way, uh, Ahmed Abzal was uh, suggesting a weekly, on a, and he wanted to do a, uh, a Saturday first and uh, see how the uh, uh, for the timings he wanted to go more of a democratic way later on. So whenever you guys want to uh, give me a, a date that you want to start, and then I can forward it to him. He's in the central time zone? Uh, yeah, he's in the same time zone as you are. Okay. Minnesota. So, so I'm just throwing this out as an idea that won't be too early for for you. Uh, but wait, this is going to be, he's going to teach reconstruction of religious thought in Islam? Yeah. Uh, then uh, I'm just throwing this thinking out loud. What if we did like 10 a.m. Chicago time? What all of you? Uh, yeah, he did. Uh, he proposed 11 a.m. Fine by me, inshallah. Okay, so I, I will, I forwarded you the text, correct? The the text, uh, the the textbook, and so forth. So you might, oh, yeah. if you want to, forward it to the group and see whoever is interested. He wanted to have a head count as well. So okay, so so to let all y'all know, uh, Ahmed Ozal, who's another one of our old friends, he he, uh, Dr. Ahmed Ozal, he teaches at Concordia College up in uh, Minnesota. Minnesota, yeah, Minnesota, and he's. Uh, 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 the possessor of a very, very big, big brain. And, and so we've been trying to twist his leg to get him to teach us something. And, and so uh, he's, he's willing to teach us uh, Muhammad Iqbal's book, Reconstruction of Religious Thought in Islam, which is very heavy, very abstract. And so I think it'll be fun to go through this with him. And so based on what Dr. Kazi is saying, it looks like it'll be like a Saturday class 
if you're interested, then uh, email me. Uh, and email me either at my Gmail or my Loyola address. My Gmail is just is just omarmuzaffer at gmail.com. And, uh, and then we can give him a head count. And the edition of Reconstruction of Religious Thought in Islam that he wants to use is the Stanford publication, which I can send you. And so, uh, Dr. Ghazi, let us know how soon he's ready to start. I mean, uh, I think the ball is in our court. So once I give him the head count, then uh, I can uh, okay, so, uh, I mean, finalize the logistics. Depending upon whatever one else is seeking, um, then potentially a week from this Saturday, if he's willing. You know. mm -hmm. Okay. And so, so, yeah, when you get the head count, let me know, and then I'll get in touch with him, inshallah. Yeah. Okay, inshallah. Uh, Dr. Mahan's head bubble reminds me of this guy who got into this really bad car accident. Every bone in his body was broken, and the paramedics embraced him, and they told him, okay, whatever you do, don't move. And the guy was, okay, great. And so, anyway, so, okay. So, uh, so for whoever's interested in that course, uh, uh, email me, inshallah. It should be, it should be a, a, a lot of fun, inshallah. And uh, I can't remember the last time I've been in any of his classes, so I'm curious to see how he's also evolved as a teacher. It's been a long time. I missed the last sentence. He said it's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun, inshallah. Oh, okay. Just want to hear that. Well, I, I'm just holding my tongue. I'll I'll, I'll give you the comeback. Uh, anyway, okay, the... so so yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we'll we'll stop right here. Uh, if there's no other questions, <laughs> tomorrow. Subhanakallah, bihamdika nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta nastafiruka na tuwi lake. Subhanakallah, bihamdika nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta nastafiruka na tuwi lake. Subhanakallah, bihamdika nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. May Allah tell the word to you all, inshallah, and we'll see you tomorrow. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.